there's a thing called fun. You might want to look into it. And it's, <laughs> it's. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. You may have wished this episode wouldn't happen, but it does. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Cecil Blinking Man himself. Make your wishes. And Peter, he's physically awake, but maybe not mentally. Gajic. I wish I was masturbating. <laughs> Who says you can't? <laughs> if you wish to be masturbating or a master of your baits, you go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. So tonight we're going to talk about the Wishmaster franchise. And this thing's barely a franchise, really. Before we get into the individual films... And we start to go into the histories of these. Just, Wishmaster was a big, it was a pretty big deal in the late 90s. I remember these were all over the place. Andrew Devoff as the Wishmaster, even though he's only in the first two, became sort of a horror icon along there with like Pinhead and Freddy and Ash and all that. As a whole, what do you think of the Wishmaster franchise of four films? I would say that it's definitely a franchise. I mean, there have been people that have said, you know, certain films have been franchises and there's been two of them. I kind of look at it as anything past the first one is a franchise. The downside is that they're of varying degree degrees of quality. I really enjoy first one. I think is really good. I love the second one. I think it's the best of the series. But once Devoff left the series really dropped in quality because the replacement that they got for him, it's not that he was bad. It's just that he wasn't Andrew Devoff and Devoff just had a, has a menacing way about him and he carried the character. He really was the character. And whereas there's been, some horror franchises, for example, Jason Voorhees, where you can have different people play him and it it doesn't like I mean, you have different people that play him better and worse. In this case, it was really his facial features and mannerisms that came through and made it, you know, creepy as it was and made mm. him likable, made him enjoyable as a bad guy. Like so Freddy. I think that the, exactly like Freddy with like, that's why the Freddy, uh, the reboot didn't work because even though the replacement was a really good actor, it just, it didn't embody what the original had. It was it not. It just didn't know what same. to do with it. They were like, screw it. We'll just put the Christmas sweater and the burn makeup on and have him do like a scratchy voice. And it's like, that's, that's not Freddy. Yeah. It's, it's, there's more to it. There is a, a level of performance. And that was the thing with, with Andrew Devoff. He was like, Sly and sneaky. Mm -hmm. He would he would manipulate the words in order to get you to say what he wanted you to say, so he could screw you over. Really and dry humor too. Like he just randomly throws in like ah, fuck it. 
Yeah, just that, that's the thing, the, the additional level that he brought to it. Three and four just, um, they, they felt, I mean, I realized that two was also a direct-to-video. Two was a TV movie. That was a, I think it was Showtime. Two was a pay cable movie. That wasn't even direct-to-video. Oh, Other wow. The, but it's like, um, the locust scene, I think overall it doesn't really look like a TV movie. No, it totally doesn't. It actually, the, the quality of it is decent. Now, three and four, you can tell her. Oh, uh, God, yeah. And, and as far as, um, the popularity of the character, I have the freaking Wishmaster action figure. <laughs> Ho- hopefully it's Andrew one? Devoff. Yeah. It's the, and yes, it's the Andrew Devoff McFarlane figure. And it's nice. awesome. The first two are great. They feel like they connect together. I mean, the second one's got some dated looking effects, but I don't, I don't think they had the same, same budget and same effects team really. I mean, this, the stuff you, we saw from K&B effects in the first one was fantastic. The Wishmaster himself looked really, really organic, but in both films, Andrew Devoff plays him fantastically and both films feature some really inventive, um, sequences and gore effects and, and practical effects, good mood. Uh, so I really enjoy the first two, three and four. Or skip entirely. Well, before we get into the first film, we should state that this is a weird franchise in the fact that, just like we talked about last week, how they're doing something different with the franchise. I hate it. Oh, they're just remaking the same movie over and over again. I hate it. The Wishmaster movies exemplify this. One, two, and three. Especially the, especially three and four. I mean, well, three and four were shot at like the same time, so that kind of makes sense. Well, see, the thing with one, two, and three is they basically are the same movie. A basic white girl finds the, finds the gem, releases the jinn, he forces her to do things, she tricks him at the end. That's the plot of one, two, and three. And then four actually tries to do something different, but it's different is also idiotically stupid. I would have preferred <laughs> they just stuck to the goddamn formula, you know? This is because well, you can still do different stuff with the formula. Like the second one had interesting elements of of but like the basic plot is the, the prison exact same and the casino and stuff like that. Like it added some new stuff into it. Well, that was the coolest thing about the second one is how many times has there been a slasher movie where like the villain gets arrested? And is in prison. Yeah. You know, like it was just, it was a neat you know, little spin on things. I even wanted to, I wanted the whole movie to take place in the prison too, because that, that opens up so many opportunities because how many people in prison were, were wishing, wishing they were someone else easily have the whole movie take place there. We'll get into that yeah. when we get into Evil Never Dies. First, we just have 1997's Wishmaster, directed by mm-hmm. K&B Effects, the K and K&Bs, Robert Kurtzman, and written by Peter Atkins. Now, the problems that you run into with this first film is they didn't have a whole lot of money and they didn't have a whole lot of time. I think it's to Kurtzman's credit that you can't necessarily tell that. Some of it, like the, like the intro scene back in like ancient, you know, whatever it was when the Jin was pulling his crap off where, where he's like running around Agrabah mutating people. It came across as very, just keep the actors in frame kind of shooting. But once you find out they only had 33 days to shoot this whole film from production to end that kind of sets things a little bit deeper into motion when you just find out. Well, it's really impressive that they managed to make a movie like that in such a short amount of time. Right. He had only six months from the time he got the okay to the time it showed up in theaters. It's a shockingly short period of time. It is, especially the the quality of the effects and the look of the film. Like, it feels like a like a big movie. Well, I think that's because it's K&B doing it. Well, you yeah. Know, I, I think I think that's why, is, you know, it's K&B. Mm-hmm. We also have to point out all of the cameos, because Robert Kurtzman, you know, K&B, has done so much 
with this. There are cameos by technically Angus Scrim. He's a voice only. But you got George Buck mm. Flower. You got Kane Hodder, Ted Raimi, Tony Todd, Reggie Bannister, as, w- as well as like Robert Englund and Robert, Robert Englund and Andrew Devoff in that. But the plot is mm. basically an ancient djinn who he will grant mm. your wishes, but he will mess with them based on the way you word them. Well, it's, it's the, it's the real lore. Like, like this is kind of what genies were based on. They were more like malevolent creatures that would kind of, that would actually mess with your wishes and, and seek out to sort of more screw you over for the benefit of their own kind. Well, I mean, the tagline is be careful what you wish for. It was the monkey's paw in a sense, yes. you know? Well, yeah. Yeah. Sort of the more, more of the original like Persian story that all the, all the genie and Aladdin shit was eventually derived from. So basically he is, as the movie opens, he's wrecking Agrabah. He, he gets his soul trapped into the little gem where he has to live. Then we cut to mm-hmm. modern day 1997. Robert Englund is like this hoity-toity art collector who is specifically collecting the statue the gem is in. A drunk worker accidentally drops the statue, releasing the gem. A scumbag on the site grabs the gem, hocks it. A basic white girl rubs the gem, opens it, and if she completes three wishes, all of Jinkind will be loosed upon the world to wreak havoc. And he manipulates Mm -hmm. people, and that's basically the plot of the next two films as well. It's fantastic. It's just, it's really, it's really entertaining. It's got a great vibe to it. All the performances in it are, well, they're, they're better than average to, to what you'd get with a, a movie like this, which I think would normally just be kind of your basic monster film, but everything elevates it. The effects work from KNB, Andrew Devoff's performance, the really charming cameos. Like I really enjoy Robert England as the, the hoity toity art collector guy. You got Tony Todd as a, I believe he plays like a security, not a security guard, but a bouncer. And then you got, you know, Kane Hodder is the security guy that gets literally turned into like a wall. Just, just overall, it's really fun. It's really inventive. It's, it's got some very, very shocking gore effects, but it isn't constantly gory. So when something happens, it's very effective. Like when something happens, it's very gruesome. Like the dude that gets the, you know, the, the mace smashed into his skull or the, and it's one of the, the effects artists that's actually part of the death scene is the guy that gets, um, messed up with the piano wire and gets his like head yanked off and stuff. Like there's some really shocking stuff in there. But it it works because it's it's sprinkled out throughout the film and it's not constant. It, it builds up a mood and everything feels uh, really effective in the film and just just overall deserves. It's a character that deserves to be alongside all the all the other iconic characters and I think they they really were trying with that. And for a time, Wishmaster was sort of on the same tier as you know Hellraiser and Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the Thirteenth and stuff. Like I and I think he does belong there, even though the franchise technically only has like two actually good movies in it but just for Andrew Devoff's performance alone and and the look of the the Wishmaster which is really pretty awesome looking in in sort of uh I, I think a lot of people nowadays would look at that and go the 90s edgelord but it's like fuck <laughs> off he looks cool he, he's like a buff demon with snakes coming out of his head and stuff he's awesome it's almost like a mortal combat character or something and i think that's what drew a lot of people to the character initially to begin with with the film because that was kind of that was a popular aesthetic back then we're kind of over the top sort of like monster demonic comics and and mortal combat and like weird mystical powers and stuff you know hellraiser was pretty popular at that time too so you can see why it's a it's a film that resonated with that with that generation i think it still really holds up too the the jinn had to look different according to kurtzman quote the jinn needed to be like no other character it had to be something truly original 
had original, had heavy tribal scarring and body modifications, and had a headgear full of skull bones. The head design was mm. changed to incorporate the skull bones and turn them into more head-like tendrils. This, along with our concept designs, were done for his wardrobe and finger claws, made him seem more majestic than horrific, unquote. I really enjoy the first movie. And fun fact, when the djinn is first brought into our world the second time in the film that we see, he's a little fella. And that was uh, Vern Troyer in the baby makeup as he's oh, kind of that's reforming. Right. So that was a, a neat little thing. The movie in and of itself, it's just, it's... It's clever. The, the way that they worked it to have a, a really, I don't want to say simplistic premise, but essentially they managed to make a whole movie around this guy trying to force this girl into three wishes. And so they do like, you know, the first wish is, is kind of the, the nonchalant like thing. And then she sees, oh, wait, this is serious. And the second wish is like, oh, God. And the third one is where she really tries to tie it all together to screw him over to fix everything that she's done. And it's uh, it's a neat movie. Um, it's all pulled together by, as you guys have said, K&B's effects, um, Andrew Deboff's performance, and just all the little things the cameos the clever script the enjoyable playful nature of the whole thing it's brutally violent it never feels like overly horrific like some movies you're like oh my god like this it's just kind of a shock and then you you get over it it's like fun so it's it's an entertaining movie it's really really good i i am um, i've always enjoyed like when when after it was out in theaters and they started running it on cable it's just one of those movies you put on you watch for a few minutes and you just enjoy it andrew devoff has this to say about the jin costume quote and i'm not going to be able to ever do his accent cuz his accent's awesome but if you ever wondered what an armadillo feels like walking around in that armor, I've often thought the full Jin costume comes very close to that experience, unquote. So it sounds like it wasn't the most comfortable costume to be in. Oh, no, well, obviously that... not. I, I'm like, I think he was in like, uh, in the makeup chair for about four or five hours before shooting, and then it took like two hours to take off. Yeah, it's like a full, like, bodysuit for the mm. majority of his scenes. He had to act really big inside of it, too. Like, really exaggerated emotions just to get the expressions to look subtle on, on screen. Like, he was watching the dailies after every shoot just to see how it came out. Cause, cause he didn't know what it looked like because the, the makeup was moving quite quite differently and more subtle to the way his expressions were. So if he wanted to deliver like a subtle expression on the makeup, he had to be really big uh, underneath it. Definitely would have been hard considering everything that he was, that he had on him. So it's like, he, he's obviously already like sweating ass, sweating balls in that thing. And he, he also had to like move really big too. So it, it easily was very difficult, but he, he put in a hell of a performance. It's not a perfect film. It's got a lot of problems. It has a lot of plot conditions conveniences it has a lot of as i pointed out a few weeks ago where a character for plot convenience has to do the stupidest possible option of every available option repeatedly for the plot to work so it's not a tight script it's not a tight movie it it feels a little low budget i was actually surprised i mean i do remember the movie was theatrical but i was actually a little surprised re-watching it that this was theatrical it really feels like a mid-90s direct-to-video film and i don't mean that in a bad way it just doesn't feel like a theatrical film of 1997 because i mean you got to go back and look at some of the films from back at that time there, there were a lot of movies that came out that uh, they kind of had that vibe so i i don't think that it's uh now 
three and four absolutely feel like direct to video, but this I felt uh, it was not a cheap movie and it looked good on the big screen and uh, it looks good on the small screen. Part of the movie, maybe being better than more the, than the five million dollar budget it had, might have been that Sam Raimi was unofficially a producer. He helped out a lot, but Wes Craven also produced the movie and was on set a lot to help Kurtzman. So I think maybe that helped the movie a little bit behind the scenes. They sold it as Wes Craven presents right. Wishmaster. Right. That that helped sell. It's kind of like the Quentin Tarantino presents. It's a way of tricking people into thinking that it's a you know craven film when really it's a, it's a kurtzman film but unlike most west craven presents movies which he literally some of the ones that came out in the really late 90s and early 2000s he says he just sold his name to he he had nothing whatsoever to do with they or some of the others that at least this one west craven was actually involved in this west craven presents like uh like boogeyman yeah <laughs> oh god stuff like that he had nothing to do with he just he basically sold his name you want to put my name on it all right the checks the check cleared fine i i don't agree that it has a, a tv movie vibe to it i mean this you, you have to take into account this was at a time where you would actually see more uh middle class filmmaking films in theaters like there was a range of of different stuff that you would see on the on the big screen other than instead of like today where it's all mostly like big studio blockbuster stuff other than like the occasional independent one that might slip through the cracks and stay in theaters for like a week, a week and a half. This was a time when you had a lot more distributors, a lot more ties with the, well, obviously you had the, the video store market. So something would end up in, in video stores or be promoted by, by a company that runs out of a place like that. So I think it makes more sense that you're going to see something that has more kind of middle class filmmaking sensibilities the way Wishmaster does. And I, I do feel like it's a very big looking movie. Like it's, it's, you know, thanks to can be effects and thanks to the very outstanding performances in the movie and just the overall vibe and tone of it, it very much deserved to be in theaters. Then two years later, in 1999, we got Wishmaster 2, Evil Never Dies. Now, this one is more of a mixed bag, and we start to see the degression of the franchise to, to a degree. Like I said, this one was originally a TV movie, and then went, can't even say direct-to-video because it was on TV first. I actually think this one was made direct-to-video, but it was Showtime or whatever channel it was, paid the rights to run it first. I remember when that happened to Beyond Reanimator years later. We'll call this one direct to video. Andrew Devoff returns. You know, now you have Jack Shoulder from Nightmare on Elm Street 2 coming in and The Hidden and, you know, coming in to direct this one. And he's not the biggest fan of the first film. This is the first one that really goes, okay, you're just getting a little bit goofy now. Cecil, remember when I talked about how this movie is just full of that's not how that works, and I'm not talking about the Jin stuff, I'm talking about like, you know, television and the court system and things like that. This is the one that just says, yeah, we're not even pretending we take place in the real world anymore. There's a thing called fun. You might want to look into it. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's a movie about a, a genie that can grant wishes and he screws you over, you know, if you, you word them wrong. So, uh, I, I am willing to give a certain amount of, uh, leeway 
to that. I mean, yeah, sometimes there are movies where it's like, all right, now you're just going completely off the rails. But it's like, it, it, you know, if if they're doing dumb things, but it doesn't really, t- I mean, it'll take you out of the movie because you're so literal. I just kind of roll with it. I'm like, eh, you know, it, it, if I'm thinking about it afterwards, that's one thing. But if in the movie while it's happening, if they do it subtle enough that I'm not really noticing it, I usually will give it a pass. But, uh, I, I mean, so okay, this one has a scene where the Jin in the middle of the Russian mob standing around pointing guns at him turns their boss and remember they don't know he's a Jin or anything like that you know they they think he's just a crazy man turns their boss into their number one enemy and their first thought is just get him and they just start beating the, the boss now looking like the enemy up none of them think you know what this is a little queer here Jin they don't know that though Jin. They exactly, and they don't know that he just turned, they turn their boss into the bad guy. They just all of a sudden they see the bad guy and they all go attack him. It's, it's, it's a, ah, of all the things that you're going to get upset about. Listen, Josh, this is a movie that features the djinn making a lawyer literally fuck himself. To death. <laughs> okay, shut up. Seriously, I think it's just, you're, you're, there are certain times when I will agree with you that they're like, okay, yeah, they've just thrown any kind of context and reality out of the question, you know, out of the window. But here, okay, you know, so what? They, they all, <laughs> I mean, there's not some sort of, you don't think that he could kind of manipulate the people also. All of a sudden he looks like him, therefore he is that guy, and so they all attack him. Well, no, cause late, cause, it was a funny scene. No, because later in the movie it's revealed that it is, it's not actually like he swallowed their places because once his powers are undone the guy reverts back to his original appearance so it was right. like an illusion i guess or i'm not sure the jinn powers are very vaguely defined it's probably just an illusion i'm sure he could like you know ma- manipulate what people see at least for a certain amount of time enough to do what he needs to do but okay this one now for evil never dies this one's actually a sequel to the first one, and I I mean that. And this one picks up at the end of the first film. Basically, the Jin is defeated by she uses her final wish, which that the dock worker at the beginning of the first movie was not drunk. Therefore, the statue never gets broken. Therefore, the gem never gets released. Therefore, never gets pawned, etc., etc. So the Jin is trapped back in the statue. This one opens with mm. that Jin still being in the statue, although somehow it's not in Robert Englund's possession anymore. Now it's in a museum. I guess he donated it. But whatever. A couple of burglars are trying to burgle the museum in the most obvious, loudest way possible. And one of the burglars, by the way, is actually Corey Haim because he was dating lead actress Holly Fields at the time. So even though he never takes his mask off, that's Corey Haim that gets shot. I didn't know that. There you go. A woman named Morgana. Who, come on, if you're named Morgana, you kind of got to be a goth chick. I mean, if, if you name your kid... No, it was the 90s. Yeah, if you, if you name your kid Morgana, that's that's just what's going to happen. She, yeah. she, she gets the gem, accidentally releases the Jin, things start to go wrong, and then we get what I think is one of the two main problems of this movie. Her ex-boyfriend, the priest, Father Gregory. Paul Johansson is a giant block of wood. I think you can agree with me from Highlander the Raven. That wasn't a fluke his horrible performance in that because in Highlander the Raven you could kind of go okay I get it he hated his co-star they didn't get along no I after this I just think Paul Johansson's not a very good actor well here's the thing Paul Johansson in the 90s he had a chiseled jaw he was buff he was a very handsome guy 
but he could not act. So <laughs> they would put him in these roles and he's like, they're trying really hard to pull that performance out of him. And some people just can't do it. So there are some actors that maybe they can't really act, but there's a certain charisma to him. Mm. But yeah, he was just a big oaf who would just sit there and look good. And you're like, hey, that guy's handsome. And they'd be like, duh. And you're like, okay, he sucks. And he also, no, no, this is just something I noticed that is, is kind of 1999, but kind of off-putting. Has a giant gold crucifix that he wears that he dips into his shirt pocket and hangs out with for most of the movie. And I'm thinking, that is some, that is way more bling than I think a priest at a local parish is going to have. Well, some priests just have more swag. So it is. Yeah. But it, it, in this one, it's got more of the, you know, the Jin is manipulating what people say. Because, see, in the first film, Kane Hodder's character almost beat the Jin at his own game. If he had just shut his mouth, the Jin couldn't manipulate what he had said. But he had to keep talking, mm. so that was the problem. Because the Jin, the whole thing about the Jin is, and he even tells each one this when they make their wish, choose your words carefully. And a lot of people don't get that because he'll look for any way to f*** you over in your wish because he's forced to grant it. Well, yeah. But it's not, you know, it's very monkey's posh. It's not what you think usually. So all that said, the other problem is this was the first film with the, this movie had half the budget of the original film. This was the first one to use CGI as the effects. The first film used CGI to enhance the effects, like morphing, morphing effects. It didn't use CGI for all the no, effects. No, no, it did have a lot of, of practicals. Not all it. of them, but this is some very 1999 direct to video, direct to cable CGI. The CGI when well, it's the used locusts. is horrible the, the will, in this. The locusts were terrible yeah the cgi the is bad, the cgi in this one is horrifyingly bad uh I not all of far. it just certain scenes certain um, things and and you know it's it's like it's just it's dated i mean there are humongous budgeted films that have had cg that has looked worse in my opinion i yeah. mean not all of them again but like i go there there some companies they'll just they'll outsource you know oh shit, we need this effect we need it soon and they'll they'll get it quick and then you know you kind of get what you pay for when you or especially when you get it quick yeah. so it was no it was no better or worse than a lot of others at the time a lot of movies at the time also spent a lot more money than this plus it's direct to video made for tv cg as well so it's it's not going to be great to regardless of some of the underwhelming effects there's a couple i think that the story in the second one is more fun i think andrew devoff is enjoying himself even more actually doing the not. second one he made a weird conscious choice in this movie he never blinks Never on camera. Really? He never blinks once hmm. when he's, when he's on camera. And I don't know, cause he thought the Jin wouldn't do that. In the first film, he did blink. But on this one, he said in retrospect, that was a very, very bad acting choice because that was extremely painful. So enjoying himself. <laughs> well, it worked out yeah. really well. It, it makes him a lot like yeah, it makes him more other, it of makes him more otherworldly. But Cecil, I'm going to counter your, he was having a good time on this one because no, he was not. Oh, well, man. I, I, maybe that he wasn't, maybe he wasn't enjoying himself because he made that conscious decision, but it, what I'm saying is that he felt like he was playing up the role more. It felt like he was, uh, so maybe he wasn't enjoying himself while doing it, but he felt like it was being more grandiose. He was playing it more over the top and just, it, it really, it, it gave the impression that he was enjoying himself more. Now, unfortunately, you know, like you said, if he wasn't enjoying playing it because of his decision, that's one thing, but 
the way that he was delivering his lines and everything and his little sly grins and his his little quips. It just felt like he was having more fun with it. I, I really enjoy it. Uh, I think that one is definitely the last of Wishmaster being genuinely good. I enjoy the concepts very much, the, like the the casino stuff, the the prison stuff is fantastic. Like I said, I would love to see a whole movie just that of the Jin in a prison manipulating prisoners' wishes and stuff, and seeing all the all the different things that that people that are incarcerated for most of their, most of their life or even for life uh, would be wishing for, and seeing those things get get turned around like you can have a whole movie just based on that but everything in it is um is very entertaining even if there are a few wooden performances it it overall feels really charming and it still feels like a a wishmaster film and the the wishmaster design when he's in his true form or or whatever still looks really cool it's it's amped up a little bit compared to the first film that made it a little more over the top Everything works like it's, it still feels like a true sequel to the, to the first film. You, you, you can feel them connecting very well. Even if there are a couple of dated looking CG effects, it still has a lot of really great practicals. And Andrew Devoff again was, was fantastic, even though he decided not to blink, but it added to the performance. It made him seem a lot more, as you said, otherworldly, which I feel like really worked. And even if he didn't enjoy it, I enjoyed watching it and, um, and seeing him deliver another fantastic performance which unfortunately he didn't do for three and four for obvious reasons now this one has is kind of contentious among fans and including its own director quote from jack shoulder that's one that i have very mixed feelings about and there are parts that i really like but i think all in all it's a little stupid. To tell you the truth, I haven't seen it since I made it. When I was making it, I thought it was good. I thought it was kind of funny or kind of clever. I, I definitely feel it has some merit. From what I can gather, it's one of those films that divides people. Some people don't like it, others do. And you know, it was a sequel to a movie that I thought wasn't very good at all in the first place. It's a movie I did, I regret nothing from it. You know, there's some good stuff in there, unquote. So even Jack Shoulders basically... Yeah, this is not one of my better movies. You got some directors and whatnot that will look at things in hindsight and not realize that they actually did good. You know, okay, so you did a low-budget direct-to-cable-slash-video sequel, but it's a lot of fun. I mean, there are there have been tons of directors, Spielberg being one of them, who basically said he would not make Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And it's like, that's one of your great, one of the greatest movies ever made, one of the best movies you've ever made, and you're denouncing it simply because he now that he's married he's like i could the reason why he wouldn't make close encounters now was because he couldn't fathom a husband leaving his family behind and it's like well that has nothing to do with it it's just the story that was told the husband in that movie doesn't mean that you're going to leave your wife so i think that it's just ridiculous there's a lot of directors and people that work on certain films because the perception of the film years later is not like you know it's not the greatest thing ever all of a sudden they're embarrassed by it or um you know oh i made this movie but that was back when i didn't know any better and it's like no you made it people enjoyed it like stop being embarrassed by something that you did i think you should shut up stupid <laughs> baby big baby baby brains little baby bird brains you made a good movie shut up <laughs> 
Well, and then the this film, it, it, it it's pretty decent on direct-to-video. Well, that's what we're going to call it. We'll call it direct-to-video. So two more direct-to-video movies were made. And these ones are not as good. Wishmaster 3 and 4. Okay, remember how the first film was shot on a 33-day schedule and they had six months from conception to release? 3 and 4 were shot back-to-back with a total 16-day scheduled shoot. Pretty noticeable. Yes, it is. <laughs> Three and four, like I said, they were shot back to back. They were both shot by Chris Angel. Not that Chris Angel. I even had to point that out to my girlfriend when she noticed the credit. No, it's just a, a director named Chris Angel. I wouldn't have been surprised. If Honestly, it was neither would neither would <laughs> I, but I had to check to make sure. Right now, we'll just talk about three, Beyond the Gates of Hell. Now, originally, Devoff was, they apparently were willing to pay him. He was willing to come back, but he had some ideas for the, for the plot. They didn't like his ideas, so he walked. So, that's why, here, so they, they've recast the Jin. To their credit, it's not the same character. Because this Jin is in a different gem, in a different location, in a different time period. So, at least they're not trying to say, okay, now we have another actor who's playing the same character. So at least it's a different Jin. Mm-hmm. So, something interesting. This one, now it's at college. A basic college white girl finds the gem, opens it, and the exact same movie as the first film comes about. Why be original, right? Of course, they're going to go for something that's sort of, um, I guess, formulaic because they, they want to draw in the, obviously, the audiences of the the first two uh, to a degree, but also try to do something a little bit differently. Unfortunately, it didn't really, it didn't really stick. Um, I, I thought that this one was, was terrible. I mean, I, I don't even know what to really say about it. It just, it felt like it was shot on VHS. Everything felt cheap. The gin looked cheap. It, it almost felt like, um, like it was meant to be a porn parody or something. Like it felt very like, like, like low budget, soft core VHS. You know, there like are, porn. there is a lot of gratuitous nudity in this one. So you might not be the farthest yeah. off. That's what uh, that one feels like, and it's what four feels like. It feels like the the filler scenes in a really bad porn parody. Well, and I, I think probably the main problem in this one is, and I've never seen another movie Chris Angel's made other than these two. They're shot so bland, so matter of fact, so yeah, every, flat. Everything's very like, yeah, everything feels like natural sort of room lighting or uh, outdoor lighting. Every, everything feels very, very generic. Whereas the, I think the first two films look very lush with a lot of shadow, a lot of contrast. Uh, the, the second one utilizes a lot of like reds and, and colors. It, it looks very comic book like. Uh, so none of that was in three. They look like lifetime movies. I mean, they, they look, they look like they lifetime TV movies. It's funny that two was technically a TV movie and looked more theatrical than the two that are not TV movies. Well, yeah, they clearly put in effort to make two look interesting. Like, it, it does have some really nice uh, lighting and, and shot composition in it, whereas this was literally just, okay, we're going to stand away from the actors and, and film a scene. Yeah, it, it's it's very it's bland. Very, very much just point and shoot. It's very bland. It's very Canadian because uh, th- these were shot in Winnipeg. They couldn't even spring for Vancouver. That's pretty sad. Winnipeg. The f*** out of here. To me, these movies are almost typical Americanada, where, look, it's in... Every town America, but it's so obviously Canada. <laughs> you can just tell. Yeah. It just seems so Canadian, Pete. It does. Mm-hmm. 
Firstly, the biggest thing was that it was no longer Andrew Devoff, and the guy who they replaced him with, he was trying, but he just couldn't compare. He um he also didn't look right in the makeup. Like with Devoff, it's probably more so because of um how well the uh, makeup effects looked on his face, but the new guy like he kind of looked like a like he looked like a normal guy like you know not a bad looking guy as the professor but when he turned into the gin they made the gin look like a dork and like <laughs> it, it's like I can't be afraid of this he looks dumb it was too and rubbery looking yeah yeah it just it didn't it didn't work I guess you know they just didn't have the money and time and whatnot to do it right and therefore uh it ended up just not looking uh scary or even convincing at all voice they had him doing was ridiculous too oh I, yeah I he, forget whether this was in the third or the fourth movie i mean i i know i just watched them recently but they were made at the same time i guess so it's forgivable but it's that scene where he where he gets that guy um at the at like the bar or whatever to beat him up i think the the guy ends up finally saying like i guess facetiously i i wish you put up a better fight and then the gin voice just goes granted it sounds like a mortal combat <laughs> it kind of does yeah it was horrible. Oh, like, it's so, it's so f***ing bad. Grunted. It was almost what's, like, I can't hate on them too much because they had little, like, and they had smidgens of, like, entertaining moments, but not enough to, like, go back and rewatch them. But just, just moments that are absurd like that. Like, the, the voice that they have him do flat out sounds like the fight or finish him, like, Mortal Kombat voice. And it's just, oh, oh, it's, it's dreadful. Well, and then in, I, I didn't mind, like, what, one and two, legitimately enjoy like good movies three and four i didn't mind like i didn't hate them they were they, yes they were low budget like or lower budget and they were silly and they were retreads of the original film and there's a certain kind of charm to him. And as I had mentioned before, like it was clever where she called in St. Michael, the archangel as one of her wishes. Like I thought, okay, you know what? That's, that's a neat little spin. That's something that, you know, they, they tried and, you know, it, uh, it worked to varying degrees. It, uh, it, they, they tried. I guess I'll just. Some of the it. gore was all right. It had some decent like gore effects. The, like the gore wasn't it's, bad. it's just trash. It's, it's average trash. It's it's not like completely irredeemable or whatever, but it's also not like great. Like it's not something that's that stands out as a really good low budget horror trash film, but it, it's not entirely unwatchable, I guess. I guess when you compare it to the first two, though, it seems that well, way. I think one of the problems I had, and this is where Cecil is going to say I'm no fun. At least in the in the first movie, maybe not so much in the second where they started to get more ridiculous. The Jin kind of didn't know when he was, you know, when he. He was released into 1997 he didn't quite understand that the dialogue you know the dialects and the tropes he had to kind of learn his new location here he, yeah he, and the new he, sort as, of language that he was speaking to like by the by the end of the movie he's making a lot more kind of they're very subtle but he does make yes. like one-liners or, or kind of quippy lines now and then but it's it transitions throughout the film and he's sort of he's he's sort of uh integrated himself into that culture and it's it's very um charming and kind of kind of funny when when he says stuff that's more kind of modern like anytime he says like anytime he says like fuck it or something like that except it's except great. now in the third one when the jinn takes on his human form and remember he doesn't like possess the professor he just takes on his form he knows modern slang mm -hmm. knows how to drive a car knows modern movie references knows how to operate a computer and i'm going oh fuck you Oh, at this point, they just didn't want to 
do the uh do the character development for it because I mean this 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 is the third film they're gonna assume people that enjoyed the first two are just gonna accept it. I mean I think it would have just do you really want to see fucking character development in Wishmaster Three? Do you? Because that would be horrible. I'm just saying that took me out right away. Like wait a minute, how does the Jin? Why is he using modern slang? How does he know how to use the internet? What the fuck, genie? No, it, it doesn't matter. It's it's, it's a uh, genie. Wish, Wishmaster three and four are trash films, and they don't need to make that much sense. They they has... they just need to be gory and over the top. And even in those even in those cases, it kind of falls flat. He wished himself to know how to use a computer. <laughs> I mean, he actually, I don't think I caught that. No, no, no. I'm just saying, like, he's a genie. He could be trying to he plug plot infinite holes. powers. He's he has infinite powers over like time, space, the universe. He could teach himself how to use uh, the the freaking Firefox. I I guess sure we'll we'll go with that. I think that's fine. <laughs> that's canon. It was it was an it was a cut scene of him like <laughs> wishing himself how to how to learn how to use uh, Chrome. Oh man, I really wish I knew how to use this computer. Granted, granted, fatality. <laughs> well, see, three started to bring in again. It's the same basic plot as the first two. A basic white girl finds the gem. Things happen. Blah blah blah. At least three did throw in the whole maybe maybe angelic angle because when she does wish for the angel Michael, the archangel Michael. That does add, okay, there is a religious element to this. Like, maybe there's a battle between good and evil going on, and they really just waste it. The, mm. the Archangel Michael possesses her, again, I don't know if this is intentional or not, like with Paul Johansson, a giant block of wood that's playing her boyfriend. It, it's, it's, that I think was an actual choice because you notice his acting got better when he got possessed by Michael. So the actor chose to be bland and lifeless as the human. Dumb acting <laughs> choice. Well, maybe that was more so because they wanted her to fall in love with the angel. You know, the angel is going to be more enigmatic and more, uh, you know, a, a better actor over, you know, overall. So, um, well, angels are always better actors. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, you think that it's going to be a, a more likable thing. So I guess that, I mean, it, it makes sense. Well, He's just not a good enough actor to really pull off both. And, and then, and then this one also had the obvious setups on the room of her dorm which she had one of the biggest dorm rooms i've ever seen but whatever the room of her dorm she has this this giant skull with horns of like some ancient uh animal and it fell falls off the wall when her roommate's having sex my girlfriend looks at me someone's getting impaled on that it's like yep I mean, and, and th this whole film, almost all the deaths are set up earlier. And you go, no, that's not clever. It's lame. As soon as you introduce some sharp object, well, you go. Couldn't that be the movie kind of telling you, couldn't the movie be telling you that? Because it's like, oh, I know it's really like boring and shitty right now, but someone's going to die kind of gruesomely on that thing. So stick around, please. Maybe. I, I thought it was just really, really bad foreshadowing that they're like, look, that thing no, we introduced is, is earlier. Bad. I mean, foreshadowing is not inherently bad. That's. It's interesting to do that to sort of, uh, have a callback to something later on in the film, but to, to constantly do it is, is really, really not good and but really they also lazy. Do it so obvious. Because that's, that's all you're making reference to is when the next, uh, gory bit is gonna happen. But they make it so obvious. You know, there'll be a, a, a all of a sudden a zoom in to the tip of the object and you're like, oh, that was subtle. Oh yeah. Well, that's, that's what I was saying is that, 
overdoing it can really ruin it. Like, it's good if you do it kind of subtle, and then you think back to that scene when it does happen. It's like, oh, they kind of, I didn't notice that, that they called, they called the back to something from earlier. Whereas, as I said, what they were doing here was obviously trying to tell you, oh, something gory's gonna happen with that. Just, just keep watching. Please don't turn the movie off. We know it sucks. Something violent will happen. And then at the end, she, you know, tricks the Jin again, and he stopped. But only for a year, because then the following year we get, they stopped numbering him at this point, so I guess that's good. We get Wishmaster, The Prophecy Fulfilled, also directed by Chris Angel, same actor playing the Jin, John Novak, and this one is the one that breaks the formula. It's different, but not in a good way. Just because you have a fork that has the prongs all pointing in different directions, that is different. That still doesn't mean it's useful or good, and that's what Wishmaster 4 is. This one tries to break the formula, and it's moronic. For some <laughs> reason, in Prophecy Fulfilled, they they got a little bit clever and then kind of second-guessed themselves and went, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Because in this one, it introduces the, you know, the last film had the Archangel Michael. Okay. Now they actually bring out a Jin hunter. He gets conjured up. His whole mission is to kill Jin. He's from another dimension. And he's a Highlander ripoff with a long black jacket, a ponytail, and a sword that comes out of nowhere. He has a sword fight <laughs> with the Jin, loses, and that plot line's completely dropped. And you went... Well, that was pointless. I mean, it definitely the the weakest of the four, but uh I don't know. It it's it's still just dumb enjoyable entertainment. I it yeah, it had a lot of stupid things that they did, but uh I I don't know. It's 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 a dumb thing you could sit down and watch. It's uh, I recommend you watch the first two, but if you've seen the first two a bunch of times and you want more, eh, you could do worse. <laughs> what do you think about the whole Highlander Jin Hunter character that just pops in, gets immediately killed, and is not brought up again? Was well, they, was the Jin Hunter just something to kill ten minutes of screen time? Well, they they probably were trying to pull like a um uh a Shining moment where it's like, oh, here comes the guy. He's gonna oh, wait. like you know, he just comes in. He's gonna save the day, and he gets wasted. So yeah, yeah, uh, I think that's what they were likely trying to do. With that, that didn't work. Then I think they were trying to be clever. They were trying to be clever, and maybe a better director might have been able to pull it off, but uh, they didn't, and consequently, it didn't. Very forgettable. Uh, I, I was uh zoning in and out throughout most of that one. It was just, it was very meh. The the only thing I like about this one that really breaks the formula is, like I said, the Jin Hunter was a nice addition if you had done something with it. More of that could have been nice yeah. if he was throughout more of the film. Yeah, I think that would have been pretty interesting to give the Wishmaster sort of more of a, the Jin more of a formidable opponent. But this is... This is Wishmaster 4 that we're talking about. Right. And technically, he I, okay, I, I don't want to call him a Jin Hunter. That was probably a mistake on my part. He's actually trying to kill the main girl because it's her wishes that will bring about the end of the world. So while he fights Jin, he's actually hunting her to kill her. So I guess that adds something to it, that he's not technically a good guy. He's mm. trying to save the world, but you just kill him after 10 minutes of screen time no apparent reason 
And, and then in, in this one, they also, and it, I guess it technically breaks the formula and brings about the title, Prophecy Fulfilled. She does make her third wish and the other Jins, and you could tell the low budget, you notice there's only three more. He talks about his race being brought in to wreak havoc on the world and there's only three more. Mm. So there's only four Jins total and they never <laughs> appear on screen together. So I think it's the same costume recycled. You know, I, I think they were all shot separately. <laughs> so I think true low budget, but in this one, she actually fulfills the prophecy, but then ends up screwing the djinn over by using one of her wishes against him from earlier. Because earlier she wished a sword that could kill him, and he she got it. But the problem is she can't wield it. But then later on, through a bunch of contrived actions, he gets impaled on it. So, oh, she wins! Which I don't understand <laughs> why then that, that literally goes back and undoes everything in the movie. And I'm like... That's not how it, I mean, okay, the first film did that because she literally wished everything to be undone. But two and three, it didn't go and undo everything that else had happened when the Jin was killed. I don't, they changed the rules, but not in a logical way. Do you see how this one is different, but always in a stupider way? It was in a way where it's like they, they wanted to do something different, but they weren't really, they didn't have the confidence to fully go through with it. I just think that uh, they didn't quite have uh, enough to make it happen. Enough time, enough budget, enough good actors. It's it's okay, but uh, I, I've seen I've seen better, but I've also seen worse. And just like the last one, this one was also shot in Winnipeg and is shot completely flat, completely bland. Why do you hire a main actress with a no nudity clause? There are four sex scenes with her in this movie, and she's. Either wearing her bra in one, which Cecil, you and I have talked about this. That is a pet peeve of mine in movies. It's infuriating. She also has those, (laughs) those sheets that are cut at a weird way. So the guy, when they're laying next to each other, shows his chest, but her chest is covered because real sheets don't bend that way. It's like, Mm -hmm. why do you hire an actress to have sex scenes in a movie that has a no nudity clause? I mean, at one point she's literally battling the Jin in her bra and you're just going, Oh, come on. Yeah, they're like, look, what can we get away? Like, will you, will you at least go down to your bra? You know, and she's all right. You know, yeah, it's, it's so like, it just, it's corny. I've seen, seriously, there was a movie I watched. They had a budget of, and I'm not kidding, under a thousand dollars. They had five women in the movie. All five women got naked. And so it just, it just baffled. I mean, I, I look, if they don't want to do nudity, that's, that's absolutely, you know, nope. That is their prerogative. That is their thing. But it's just really funny in a movie like that where there is a, a ridiculous amount of obviously there's supposed to be nudity here and it's not. It just, it sticks out. And that is, uh, it's just funny. Uh, I, I find it more humorous than I, I'm getting to the point where it's more funny than than annoying. It's just uh, it's just corny. It's like, all right, you know, whatever. So this was the last one. They never met any more after this, although I've been hearing rumors for a while that a Wishmaster reboot. I don't know. Oh, I know. Uh, I mean, like I said, this is just one of those things, you know, you, you constantly hear, oh, they're going to be rebooting this. They're going to be rebooting this. I keep hearing that there's going to be a Wishmaster reboot. So having now seen all four movies and us talked about them, do you think this franchise deserves its place in the horror pantheon? And it, it can't just be just the first film. As a franchise, does the Wishmaster films deserve their place alongside Hellraiser and Nightmare on Elm Street and Child's Play and things like that? 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, these these franchises listed don't have perfect sequels either. I mean, if you look at Child's Play, in my opinion, really the only two, the only ones worth watching are the first two. The Hellraiser films dropped off almost immediately after the the second one. Like the third one is passable, but then everything else in the series is a goddamn joke. So Wishmaster has four films, two of which are solid, two of which suck. I think that's pretty average. Most franchises drop off after the second or third film. Yeah, absolutely. For Devoff's performance alone in the first two, he's uh, he's such a, a great villain. He plays it just awesome. I mean, you can't not like him. So I think it's, uh, you know, I wouldn't put it up there with like Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th, but I would definitely say that it deserves its place in like the grand scheme of horror franchises of horror villains. Um, I'd say so. at the very least, the credit I would give to Wishmaster is that it has a better first film than both Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. Its first entry is, I would say, its best entry. Uh, I would say it's better. <sighs> That that's that's a tough one, man. Uh, I I don't know. I think I think it's good. I don't know if it's if it's as good as like the first Nightmare on Elm Street. And I think it's it's paced better than the first Friday the Thirteenth. But mm. the first Friday the Thirteenth, I don't know. It just it will always have a a special place. Four movies. It's kind of average in the sense that the the first few are are the really good ones. So it does count as a as a franchise for sure. I think a reboot could do could actually improve. Maybe not over the first movie. But improve the the reputation of those pretty shitty sequels. Do you think a, a reboot in this case? God, it uh, depends on who would make it, really. Unfortunately, it would be CGI like, nowadays. So all those great. It would be a lot of CGI, oh, yeah. more than likely. It would probably be Blumhouse, which would either be really good or either be really bad. Because I mean, the, there was some. Th- this is a this this is a company that has its its um its pitfalls and its highlights. I mean, they, they also did put out a movie recently called truth or dare, which is just a <laughs> fucking joke The I think truth or dare was a movie that they kind of had signed on for before Blumhouse went. I think their, so. Yeah. They're like their overhaul. Cause they've been kicking like with, with, with split and with um get out and all, they've been doing a really good job. But the thing is though, truth or dare, regardless of the quality, it made a ton of money. And, did it uh, actually? And it did very well. That's just, that seems to be how it works with a lot of like horror stuff nowadays is you have to have like a catchy title and, and have the title repeated a lot in the trailer. It's like, oh, the characters say truth or dare and they have a creepy face. It, it seems like it's, it's sort of name marketable, like the, like the pee pee poo poo man as well. It's yeah. like uh, just well, some kind of name that, that draws you in. It cost 3.5 million to make. It made 77 million. Oh my God. Well, at so, the very least, if Blumhouse did a Wishmaster reboot, it would probably do well. Yeah, they would probably, I would say they'd probably give it a budget of at least that three, you know, three to five million. Well, that's their, their key is keeping everything under five million. And that way you're all, you're, you're guaranteed. Profit. Which is kind of weird yeah. when you look back at it that the original in 1997 cost five million. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, it's, but movie tickets didn't cost that much back then. Was the yeah, thing. they were, you have to count, uh, inflation into how well, uh, movies do lately because movie tickets nowadays are like 15, 16 bucks, depending on some theaters, even more I, expensive than that. Budget, so though. you have people going to see the same movie multiple times. It's making it a lot more I'm money. Talking about the budgets mm-hmm. though. The original in 97 was 5 million. If Blumhouse remade it at 5 million today, that would be like Wishmaster 2's budget in 
in in relation. It would be, yeah. So I, I don't think mm. I, I don't. You know, I don't like reboots in the first place. I just I don't know. I kind of want a Wishmaster movie to take those last three movies, you know, the taste out of my mouth because those last three sucked. I know you guys liked two, but I did not. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if you for you chuckleheads, then where would people wish to find Peter? I wish I wasn't going to work, but if you would wish to see me and my content, you can see it on Twitter at Cinematica, YouTube the Cinemasticist, Facebook the Cinemasticist, uh, 1201beyond.com, and on Patreon at Cinematica. And I, I wish you would give me money. I wish Cecil would tell us where he can be found. Granted, Granted. Ah, I do that. <laughs> uh, you can find me at uh, Good Bad Flicks on uh, well, GoodBadFlicks.com, Good Bad Flicks on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, and 1201beyond.com. And everyone wishes I would go away, but I won't. But you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Try to check out the Wishmaster movies, but you will be disappointed with them. You might need alcohol for three and four, just warning well, you. Well, they're so bland, I don't even think you need that. They're just so inoffensively bland. Well, yeah, that's why you need the booze. Add some substance to it. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.